Well, good morning, and uh, thank you very much for your welcome to me, but also thank you so much for your prayers and your support for the Christian Unions Ireland, for many of the students here at Crescent, and also as we seek to hold out the gospel to students on every campus all across this island, but thank you for your support for that. There is a saying that if you want to make God laugh, then tell him your plans. I don't know who said it first, I think it's quite an old saying, but it crops up in in popular culture, in films and so on. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And you might think that after a year of COVID and restrictions and all our plans being up in the air, that that's quite apt. But is it? In Romans 15 that we've just read, Paul has told us his plans, his ambitions. It's quite a strong word. And he tells us what gets him out of bed in the morning. He tells us his life's goals. And how will God respond? Well, this passage falls into two halves. You can even see that in our translations. Uh, The first half from verse 14 to 22 is in the past tense. It's about what Paul has done. And the second half from verse 23 onwards is about what he will do. And that's how we're going to look at this passage this morning. Firstly, what Paul has done. And secondly, what Paul will do. So what has Paul done? Well, look at how he starts in verse 14. He's just written the book of Romans. That's what he's just done. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. In other words, what has Paul just done for 15 chapters? He's written to Christians, to a church who are doing the right stuff. You see that there in verse 15. They're full of goodness which I think says something about their character. They're filled with knowledge, which I think says something about their maturity, and they're able to instruct one another. In other words, this is a good church. And and, and here's a letter, Romans, that doesn't rebuke the church like, say, the letters to Galatia or, or Corinthians do. And so what has Paul done when he's addressing a good church to mature believers? He says, verse 15, I've written to remind you stuff you already know. In other words, Paul doesn't assume the gospel. Imagine for a minute Paul probably dictating this letter and, and, and there's a scribe sitting in the corner scribbling frantically chapter after chapter and, uh, because Romans is a very long letter, isn't it? And, it? and it's Paul's most detailed letter as he deals with issues like sin and, and the cross and grace and justification and, and what it means to live that out day by day. And imagine at some point, picture this scribe laying down his laptop and saying, look, Paul, these guys know that stuff. Look, they're full of goodness and knowledge. They're able to instruct one another. Why repeat all this stuff? I mean, let's face it, parchment isn't cheap these days. Why not skip this stuff? But Paul won't assume the gospel. He won't assume you know the cross and you've got the cross. He won't assume you know Jesus in here. Because I know my heart is only five minutes away from denying the gospel. And so Paul won't assume I've got it. And so he tells me again. Now in my head, I know the facts. I think probably in my head I could sit an exam on justification by faith, but my heart doesn't get it. My life on ordinary, rainy Thursday mornings never sings of the gospel. And you and I are only five minutes away from denying the gospel in our hearts. 
And so what Paul has done for 15 chapters, what he's just done is remind mature believers of stuff they already know because Paul will not assume the gospel. And that is our danger. Why have some people's hearts grown cold? Why, why do our hearts grow cold? Because very often we assume the cross and we move on to newer stuff. You know, we, we get bored by it. We want to jump to application. We want five things to do for Jesus before breakfast. And, and we know the truth, but we don't enjoy the truth. And, and the gospel in here becomes tarnished and dull and stale. And so our walk with Jesus becomes tarnished and dull and stale. But Paul never assumes the gospel. Verse 15, I have written to you boldly a very long letter to remind you, you who are mature Christians, to remind you of stuff you already know. But that's what I need. That's what you need. It's every Sunday morning, every time you open your Bible. We need our hearts won again to Jesus over and over and over. So quite simply, that's the first thing Paul has done. That's what he's just done. He's just been writing to remind them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that thought then flows into the rest of verse 15 and the rest of verse 16 where he says this is priestly service. Have a look. He says, um, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God, verse 16, to be a minister. That word means a servant, perhaps a slave. To be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't use language like this very often to describe his work as being like a priest, as of offering an offering to God. But it's, of course, a very rich picture through the whole of Scripture, isn't it? You remember back to the very first days, the early days of Israel's history, when, when a few weeks after they left Egypt, when they just started the Exodus, God said, he says, this is why I've chosen you. Why I've called you to be my special people, Exodus 19. Ye will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy or a sanctified people. And this is what Paul is doing. He's, he's a priest who's offering a, a holy or sanctified people to God. Now, of course, we don't have very many priests these days. But, but a, a priest in ancient times had one job. And that was to stand between God and an unholy or an unsanctified people. And you can picture the priest with his back towards God and facing the people. And what he does is he represents God to the people. He brings God to the people. And then you can picture him with his back to the people and his face towards God. And what he does is he's bringing people into God's presence. People made holy through a sacrifice say, of a lamb made clean enough to be in God's presence. And that's what Paul has done. He's made God in Christ known to people, and he's made people in Christ, brought them to God, brought people who are made holy or sanctified through the cross right into the Father's presence. And of course, that's not just Paul's job. That's what you do. That's what I do. That's what every Christian does. 
We all do that. We all have a priestly service. I think in two ways. Firstly, what you'd have seen a few weeks ago, Paul has used this language already back in Romans chapter 12, where he says this. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. In other words, in our own lives, there's a priestly service in the way that we live day by day. But there's also a priestly service that we have towards non-Christians. And that's the sense that Paul is using this language here. It's the same as Peter uses in 1 Peter 2, where he says, Use, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Why? To proclaim him. That's our priestly service. We proclaim him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what Paul did. That's what you and I do. That's priestly service. We proclaim God to people who don't yet know him. And we bring people to God who loves them and who longs to be gracious to them in Christ. This is our joyful priestly service. It is, it is the service of every church, every mission partner, every mission society, every believer. It's making God known to people and bringing people to God. Why? Well, so that there may be more people made holy in Christ Jesus to worship this God. More worshipers for the one who deserves all worship. More glory for the one who deserves all praise. And so more overspilling joy for the Father and for us now and forever. And that's priestly service. That's a very high calling and it's yours and it's mine and it's Paul's. So what has Paul done? Well, firstly, he's not assumed the gospel. He's held it out to Christians in Rome. He's held it out to non-Christians. And he's done it everywhere. In fact, he's run out of stuff to do. He says, verse 19, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, that is all the way around to the Balkans, he says, I've run out of places to preach. He says, verse 20, my mission is to boldly go where no one's gone before, and it's job done. And you wonder, is Paul delusional? Is he nuts? Does he really think he's preached to everybody from Jerusalem all the way to Albania? Aren't there millions of non-Christians left? I mean, what is Paul like? Is he one of these Christians who can't get along with anybody else? Did his school report say, Paul, big brain, will go far, can't play with others? Is he just awkward like some of us who are in full-time Christian ministry? No, but Paul was unique. There was only one Paul, and he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He'd said that back in chapter one that you would have seen a wee while ago. He repeats it, really. I think the stuff in verses 18 and 19 about word and deed and signs and, and wonders, I think those are signs of an apostle because they're used elsewhere. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was unique. And what he did was he would travel to a new region and he would go to the city normally at the heart of that region and he would plant a church. But he didn't plant a Northern Irish church. He didn't plant a church that was mostly about those who were inside the building. He always planted church planting churches. 
In other words, he planted churches that would themselves ripple out and multiply and grow. And Paul planted, and then that church became the ones who would go and make disciples. They would be into the towns and villages nearby or down to the riverside when they were washing their clothes. They'd be priestly in their workplaces and homes and supermarkets. They would, they would bring God to people and people to God. And so you see Paul would go to cities in Galatia, and he'd, he'd throw a pebble into that pond, and it would ripple out. And he'd go to Ephesus and throw a pebble into that pond, and he would go to Corinth, and he would grow, go to Philippi. And, and now, he says, there are ripples going out all across Syria and, and Cyprus and Turkey and Greece and, and Macedonia and the whole eastern side of the Roman Empire. And what he's saying is, there are no more ponds for me here in the east. But there are vast swathes of the west where there is, there is nothing there's not even a ripple going out. And that's my job. I need to go there and get that started. That's my ministry. That's my unique calling. And just to be clear, Paul was unique. But he had a burning heart for people that don't yet know Jesus. And that's not unique. That's simply what it is to know that you have Jesus Christ and others don't. And Paul had this urgency at heart that, that where people haven't yet heard about Jesus, someone's got to go. And whether that's across the street or across the planet, someone's got to go. And so that's the first half of the passage. What Paul has done, what has he done? He's not assumed the gospel. He's taught it even again to Christians. He's preached it everywhere from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And this priestly service is to bring God to people everywhere and to bring people everywhere to worship God through Christ Jesus. That's what Paul has done, past tense. And then you see from verse 23 onwards, what he will do. Because verse 23 starts with the words, but now. But now, he says, but now I'm going on two road trips. I'm gonna to go to Jerusalem briefly, and then I'm off to Spain. That's what I'm gonna do next. Jerusalem first, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem briefly because I need to finish what I've started. I'm going to Jerusalem with gifts from Gentile believers. I'm going to Jerusalem because the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are dirt poor. And the Gentile Christians are generous. And I'm going to Jerusalem because Jew or Gentile, there is only one church. There is only one gospel. There is only one Lord and Savior, one Jesus Christ who died for us all, Jew or Gentile. In fact, I've been writing about this quite a lot in my book of Romans, that, that, that we are one, Jew or Gentile, and this trip that I'm taking to Jerusalem will show that to be the case. How will it show it? Well, in Paul's other letters, he'd written quite a bit about this collection, and it mattered to him. You will know that money reveals your heart. And so here's the first question. Do the Gentile believers love their Jewish brothers and sisters? Yes, they do. You can see that by what they do. They've made a massive collection for them. But here's the second question. Will the Jewish 
Christians accept their love? Will they accept the kindness of uncircumcised believers? Paul's not certain. By verse 31, you see he's praying, please, please pray they will. Because this matters. This gift will show if we're united, if there is one gospel, one Jesus, one church universal, one body. And this matters because a worldwide gospel needs a worldwide church to show its beauty. The gospel cannot be locked up in just one culture. It's not Jewish with circumcision and all that stuff. It's not Gentile either. It's not even Northern Irish. A worldwide gospel needs a worldwide church. And even today, our money reveals our hearts and it reveals, it shows who or what we love. And even today, a worldwide gospel needs a worldwide church to show the beauty of Jesus Christ to all peoples. And so, says Paul, I'm off to Jerusalem. That's my first road trip. But then, I'm off to Spain. So verse 24, I plan to go to Spain, and I'm going to come via you first. Or verse 28, when therefore I have completed this, that is my trip to Jerusalem, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Now, with COVID restrictions lifting, I'd love to go to Spain, except that it's on the Amber list, but, but you have to ask Paul, why Spain? Well, he might have answered, because if Romans is true, if all people are without excuse, then Spanish people are in terrible danger. If Romans is true, it doesn't matter if Spanish people are really nice or very sincere or moral or religious. It doesn't matter. They still fall short of God's glory and his wrath remains upon them. They are in terrible danger. And if Romans is true, if Paul's gospel is true, then Jesus died for them too, just as he died for me and for people like me. And if the gospel is true, then I cannot hoard Jesus. My, my church cannot hug Jesus like a security blanket and not care for people who don't yet know him, not love those as Jesus loves them. And Jesus said, go, and, and if Romans 10 is true, then how will they hear unless someone goes and preaches to them? If Romans 10 is true, then how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? It's very, very practical. Because how will people know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ unless someone shows them and tells them and explains it to them? How else will they know that Jesus loves them so much that he would rather die than be without them? How will they know that unless someone loves them enough to tell them? How else will they know that Jesus will take that hideous weight of all their sin and the shame that they can't erase and the stuff that they did decades ago that they can't forget or the stuff that they did last week and the sewage in their hearts and the burdens they can't get rid of, how else will they know that Jesus will take all that, will become all that, unless you and I tell them? How else will they know about a loving, an outpouring, a kind, a good Father who, who gives His Spirit without limit, the Spirit who unites us to Jesus so that in Jesus we are as loved as Jesus, and the Spirit who warms our hearts to call God 
Father Abba. How can Paul not go to Spain? Someone must. And how can you and I not go to our friends, our neighbors, our families? Someone must. And of course, you and I can do that a thousand times easier than getting on a plane to Spain. And so through 2,000 years of church history, Christians have done what Paul did. Because of course, Paul is only doing what Jesus did. Jesus went to a people who didn't know him, who would or might reject him, and, but who needed him more than deserts need the rain, more than breathing itself. And Jesus came to you because he loved you, and he sends you to them because he loves them too. And for most of us, that just means crossing a room or picking up a phone. But Paul says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to go to Spain. And you Romans are going to send me. And so he tells them, here's what you're going to do. And it's summarized, I think, in verse 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. See what he's saying? I'm going to Spain, and you're going to help me. There's no, there's no question about whether or not. He says, I'm going, you're going to help me, and you're going to encourage me. And in case you missed that, I'm going to say it again in verse 28. I'm going to Spain by way of you. In case you missed that, I'm going to say it again in verse 32. I'm going to come to you and be refreshed by you. So what will the Romans do? They will send Paul. They will send him on to Spain. You're going to help me, he says. Now, he doesn't spell out here what that help looks like, but, but here's what he might have said. Help me, he might have said, when I go on my missionary journeys normally, when I've always done in the East, I've always taken people with me. Perhaps when I go to Spain, some of you Roman Christians will come with me to Spain. Or, or help me, because it's costly to do this. I've worked as a tent maker before sometimes to fund my ministry. Nothing wrong with tent making, it's just that it wasn't the main thing that God called me to do. And it took up my time, so when I got support, I was able to lay down my tent pegs and do the one thing I was called to do, which was to preach. So maybe help me financially. If you look at the verses all around here, it's all about the gifts that are going from one part of God's international church to another part of God's international church. And, and if that stirs you, then help me get to Spain. Now, Paul doesn't say any of these things. He just says, help me. But this is all the kind of help that he's had in the past on other missionary journeys in the East. And so as he launches out west, don't you think he'll need something similar? And even today, evangelism in Ireland or, or mission, world mission, doesn't run on good wishes and hot air. And if the gospel in Romans is true, if we're to bring worshippers to the Father, if there's to be a worldwide church that displays a glorious gospel, then a big part of that is immensely practical. There needs to be a team that helps, and that's us. That's how Paul's mission becomes our mission. So Paul says, verse 24, help me, but he also says, I want to enjoy your company for a while. Or verse 32, I expect to be joyfully refreshed in your company. 
In other words, he needs encouragement, and that is vital too. Paul was often lonely and and crushed and despairing or near despair, and so help me, he says, but also encourage me. Stand with me. I need people to know that you've got my back. And just as helping is incredibly practical, so too encouraging is, is practical. It is also such a rare thing, isn't it? And yet anybody can do it. Imagine how beautiful the gospel would smell if when someone, a stranger, walks into this church, into Crescent, they find it is encouraging. There's an atmosphere of building each other up, of refreshing one another. What a contrast that would be to the kind of snippy and critical world that we live in. So help me, encourage me, he says, but crucially also pray for me. That's the other massive thing that Paul needs, and you see that in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And just notice that the language in this verse is not a polite request, is it? This is strong language. I urge you, I appeal to you, he says. And then he says, this is not just me pleading. I'm, I'm, I'm appealing based on Jesus. In fact, again, this language sounds quite a lot like Romans 12 that I had up on the screen a moment ago. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, he'd said in chapter 12. Here it's, I urge you because of Jesus. And it's probably or possibly the same thought. If you've received any mercy from Jesus, any grace, then pray. And then pray because of the love of the Spirit. You know, that that first primary gift of the Holy Spirit who gives you love for others. Pray. If the Spirit gives you love for me, Paul, though you've never met me, then pray. If the Spirit gives you love for Spanish Christians who you'll never meet, then pray. And strive together with me in verse 30. It's it's this idea of wrestling agonized with me in prayer. That's how you join with me. That's how you help me. That's how we together team up in this priestly work of, of bringing God to people and people to God. Yes, verse 31, my immediate prayer needs are rescue from outsiders and ministry to insiders. So verse 31, pray that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that is safety from from non-Christians, and that my service for Jerusalem, that is this gift, may be acceptable to the saints. In other words, pray for my safety, but pray for ministry fruit as well. And those are two prayers that every gospel worker needs, prayer for safety fruitful ministry. So Paul is saying, join my team. Pray with me. Stand with me because that is where the battle is. That is where the spiritual battle is. And it's a hard-fought one. And it is the most loving thing that you can do. So that's what Paul has done. And that's what Paul will do. And that's what the Romans will do. So let me finish briefly by just pulling together a few threads this morning that we've seen to see what we will do. Because I'm not Paul, and you're not Paul. And mostly we're like the Roman church. That is, we're senders, we're helpers, we're prayers. But 
in a church this size, there must be those that God is sending. Those who will go east or west. There will be people in the church this size with beautiful feet. And of course, churches like this need to be proactive and identifying and setting apart and helping people do that. And if you feel that may be you, then fan that into flame. You know, perhaps it may be that when you're thinking about your next job, you don't apply for a job in Belfast, but you apply for a job in the Republic. Many, many of the churches south of the border have churches that are about the size of a Crescent home group. And they need normal Christians doing normal jobs, tent making or whatever it is you do, but there to help and to encourage that church. And we who are here will send you and pray for you. Or perhaps you need to go to the ends of the earth, to Yemen or Chile or Latvia or Hong Kong or Antigua, wherever there are places where people are and the gospel isn't. Someone needs to throw a pebble into that pond and that pond and that pond and start the ripples going out. And that may be you. Because how will they hear unless someone goes? But for most of us, for most of Paul's readers, we are helpers, encouragers, prayers. People who will give money sacrificially so that the gospel can be offered free of charge with no strings attached to all peoples everywhere. And so we send people, but that's not all we do because we are not just senders, we are also the ones who are sent. In other words, we are the ripples in the pond and, and even this afternoon we'll be spreading out, rippling out even from this building or from your homes at home, going out across Belfast and beyond. That is, we go out with this same priestly ministry that Paul has been talking about. We go out to bring in more worshipers to an all-worthy, glorious God. And that's the normal Christian life. We help and we pray for, we are part of Jesus' mission through others, but at the same time, he's working out his mission through us, here and now. And therefore, mission over there and mission over here are really the same thing. There's no difference because it's the same gospel. The gospel that we rejoice in daily, the gospel we never assume, the gospel we never move on from is the same gospel we proclaim wherever God has rooted us today or wherever he sends us. That's what we do. And what will God do? Well, who knows what God will do? Who knows? But that's the adventure of walking with him, isn't it? And I'll tell you one thing God will do. God will be glorified through his servants. So tell God your plans for his glory because that delights his heart and walking with him will never be dull. So think about Paul. Paul planned to go to Spain. Did Paul ever get to Spain? We don't know. But did the gospel go west from Rome? Absolutely. It went so far west, it even came to Belfast once upon a time. And it came even here in answer to the prayers of Christians like these Roman Christians, thousands, millions of them ancient Christians who you've never heard of. Because God always answers prayers that, verse 30, are prayed to him through his son by the Spirit. And Paul knew that. So in verse 32, he says, by God's will, 
I will come to you. And God answered that prayer. Now, when Paul prayed that prayer, he didn't know how he was going to get to Rome. And for Paul, that will mean real danger in in Jerusalem. He'll be rescued by Roman soldiers because they arrest him. It will mean standing trial after trial, being delayed for at least two years in Caesarea, then being shipped off to Rome in a shipwreck and, and and a snake bite and even more delay. Finally, he'll arrive in Rome. He'll still be in prison for two more years and even more delay. And he's still not got to Spain. Yes, God will answer our prayers for his glory, but mostly not as you might expect. God always answers prayers for his glory and for your good, but mostly not in ways that you're asking. I mean, elsewhere, God doesn't answer Paul's prayer to remove the thorn in the flesh. The Father doesn't take the cup away from Jesus at Gethsemane. And how he answers your prayers in your life, in my life, how, how he answers your prayers for others is up to him. But our Father always does what is best, not just what I think is best. And Paul had said, I'm a servant. He says that back in chapter 1, verse 1. He says it here in verse 16, though the word is translated minister, I'm a servant. And a servant goes where their master sends. A slave does what their master says. And that's us. So tell God your plans. Open-handed. Give God all your plans and let him direct your paths. Give up your small ambitions and live every fiber of your being for him and for the sake of others. And and that will rarely look glamorous. It'll often look ordinary, but it is priestly service. And do it for his well done, good and faithful servant. And verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the priestly service we have, the the, the privilege we have of bringing you to people and and people to you through your most precious son. And thank you too that the gospel is not locked up in one culture, but is for all peoples everywhere. And thank you that all around the world, even this morning, your church is growing and there are more worshipers drawing near you. And so we pray in the days ahead, help us so rest in the gospel, so so enjoy Jesus that being part of your loving mission just simply becomes part of our DNA until we too stand before the throne with people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue, faultless and full of joy because we all stand together in Christ. We ask this for your namesake and for your glory. Amen.